Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be covering the Sumerian epic Enuma Elish. This is a Babylonian origin stories which introduces us to the Babylonian pantheon of gods and just how they believe the earth was created. And it's interesting, this Enuma Elish, when it was first discovered, there was a lot of parallels that were drawn between it and the Bible. So a lot of the same concepts were repeated, a lot of the same words and phrases. Enuma Elish itself it means when on high. Those are the first uh, two words of this epic. When on high. Remember in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. So it's kind of the same phrase. It's, it's introducing the starting point for what's going to happen later. So there's a lot of parallels. So what this will also do for us is it will give us an insight into just just how language works. We're going to, after we're going to cover the basic story, the basic plot of Enuma Elish, we're then going to move in and talk about the language that's used of its various deities. A lot of language that you'll recognize probably from the Bible. Language about sovereignty, language about omniscience, language about omnipotence, language about incomparability, language about incomprehensibility. And what we could do with this is we could see how this language is used in this text. And does it mean what the Calvinist would have these phrases mean? And uh, if, if not, if, if contextually in this story these phrases are used of these various pantheon of gods and they're, they're qualified in some sort of way, they're limited by context, shouldn't we apply the same standards to the Bible when we come across the exact same phrases applied to Yahweh? How, how do we go about reading? And this, this, this text is very interesting in that it is an ancient Semitic text. So it's just like the Bible. The Bible also is an ancient Semitic text. We should be reading them the same way. Before we break into this story about Enuma Elish, I'd like to really quickly highlight this rendering, this ancient astronaut archive. This is a YouTube channel. They have a guy that reads the Enuma Elish, the source material, directly without commentary, and he does it in a dramatic way, puts background music, so it's a very useful recording. And he covers all the different tablets, and he covers the expanded version with the different names for Marduk, which is a very helpful, insightful list of names for Marduk with a different uh, uh, epitaphs or different uh, titles for for Marduk. It's very enlightening the way they thought about this Marduk. But go listen to this, put it on in the background, maybe if you're playing video games or doing laundry, doing some cleaning. It's very easy to listen to and you'll get a feel for how they use language, the structure of their language, the concepts, their storytelling techniques, and uh, it'll give you an insight into the past. And this, remember, is the same type of material that we find in the Bible. In fact, a lot of Old Testament was written from captivity in Babylon, so it's coming up straight against this. So you'll see very similar phrases in, for example, Isaiah and also, also Enuma Elish, because Yahweh had to compete with Marduk. And you do that through expropriating titles for Marduk and applying them to Yahweh. But starting the story, starting the story, we are introduced at first to two primordial gods. It's Apsu, which is a male freshwater god, and uh, Timot, which is a female saltwater god. There's this process by which when the saltwater and the freshwater hit each other, all these different gods start to form from that mixture. And those gods, soon, sooner or later, they start playing around, having fun, causing a lot of commotion. And Apsu, he's, 
He's he's not a very he doesn't like children, let's say. He's kind of a grumpy old man and he says, These guys just they just keep going, they keep playing, I can't get any sleep, I can't get any rest. We gotta do something about these uh, lesser gods. Uh, how about this? I will just kill them all. Kill them all. And Timut she doesn't like this plan. So word eventually gets down to these lesser gods that uh, Apsu is planning to kill them all. Ia is introduced to this story, and Ia is said to be, quote-unquote, all-knowing. This is one of those all-knowing gods. But of course, he receives information from Timot about Apsu's plan. Ia, in turn, devises a counterplan against Apsu. He's going to put him into a coma, and then he's going to kill him. And he, in fact, goes about and he accomplishes that. So Ia kills Apsu. This enrages Timat. Timat just lost her husband. Uh, she just Now she wants to destroy all the lesser gods because they just killed him when she just, she just wanted to foil that original plan of the lesser gods being killed. And now her husband is dead. So she appoints this new god, this Kingu god, and this Kingu god she declares as her new husband, and she elevates him in the ranks of her armies. And her plan is to take an army of creatures that she's created and make war against these lesser gods. Just notice in this, these stories, these gods are all mortal. They can die. They, they can be killed in combat. Even their originator gods, Absute and Timat, are both mortal gods, even though they have spawned everything that exists. So enters the story Marduk. Marduk is created in the heavens, uh, the, the abode of the fates, where the gods determine the fates. You know, we get some of this predestined type language going on there. But of course, that just means they generally devise what's going to happen. So Marduk comes on scene, and he's also a quote-unquote all-knowing god. He had multi-eyes. There's an interesting description of him that we'll hit later, which kind of, it's, it's monstrous almost. But he's described as this perfect being. So he's introduced into the scene. So meanwhile, meanwhile, Timot is still trying to kill all these gods. And these gods are in a panic. And they, they start sending uh, challengers to Timot, people who they, they elevate to this position to to become the new king of the gods and overthrow Timot. And uh, each one of these individuals demands something for themselves. They demand that their commands be unchangeable, that uh, they, they become the foremost god. And we start with Anu. And Anu goes against Timot and he fails. And then his son, Nudimund, Nudimund, he goes, but he becomes afraid of Timot and then he returns. And finally, finally, Marduk is introduced to the scene again. He's, he's their new champion. He says, all right, I will take care of this Timot, but remember, if I win, I become the primary god. You'll find kind of a parallel to this in the Baal cycle if you're ever researching the, the god Baal in Ergaret uh, texts. But he also fights and then becomes a supreme god. This is, this is Marduk's rise to fame. So Marduk is given all these weapons and praise by the, uh, the lesser gods. And he's going up against the Timot and Kingu and their army. So Marduk approaches Timot and challenges her to single combat. She accepts. And then there's this fight scene where Marduk uh, kind of uh, gets the upper hand on Timot. She opens her mouth. He fills it with wind, shoots her with an arrow. 
and then uh, kills her and then routes her army. And from Tiamat, he creates what we know as the earth. He splits her into two, becomes uh, heaven and earth, uh, the waters, everything that we know today. Marduk goes back to the abode of the gods. He claims his rightful place as uh, king of the pantheon and starts tasking the gods with various duties, upholding this new world that he's created. And the gods complain. They, they, they don't like to work. They just remember they like to play and have fun. And now they have jobs. So they need some sort of menial. They need some sort of servant. And Marduk comes up with this plan. Whoever incited Timot to rise against them to try to come kill them, that's the person that they're going to punish and then turn into a new creature, man. So Kingu is summoned before the court. Kingu is fingered as the culprit. He is killed and his body is turned into this menial man. Man is set on earth. And man's job, of course, is to till the ground, to, to get, get resources for the gods. And the gods, they, they dwell in Babylon. That's, that's the king, the temple of the gods. And all, all the resources from the humans are brought to them. And, and Marduk and other gods are served by man. So right there we see, see some similarities and differences with, with the Genesis legends. And I use legends not in a true or false sense, just that it's a legendary story. So the Genesis legend starts out with, uh, it went on high, or in the beginning. You have this uh, creation of earth where there's uh, seven days. There's seven days is referenced in Enuma Elish. You have, even in Genesis 1, a pre-existing chaos, which is kind of like team up, but it's demythologized. It's, it's, it's not Timot, it's not an individual, it's not a life form. God takes control of the chaos in Genesis 1.1. God subverts this, uh, this non-personal watery void to create the earth as we see it today. Man, in the biblical concept, is not a menial. He's not a servant of the gods. He, his purpose is not to labor on behalf of the gods, but instead, he's given power and value and authority to tame the land. He's created as someone with whom God can fellowship, uh, comparable to God, comparable to the angels, someone in the image of God, and that gives value. So there's some similarities and differences between the two texts. Anuma Elish might have some parallels to Psalms 82. Some people call Psalms 82 the Ascension Psalm. And there is some sort of ascension concept in Enuma Elish where Marduk takes control of the pantheon. He becomes the supreme god. Whereas in Psalms 82, Yahweh steps up and reclaims or claims authority depending on how you want to read it. Critical scholarship see this as him claiming authority from a primary god, El. Whereas uh, conservative scholarship such as Michael Heiser sees this as God reclaiming authority that he had previously delegated out to the lesser gods. And he's saying, you guys are ruling unjustly. Now it's my turn to rule. I'm reclaiming authority. You guys have failed. I'm taking over. So I've written down, I've gone through Enuma Elish, various versions of it. And I've written down some, some statements that we might we might recognize. First of all, let's talk about Ea. We talked about him a little bit. He's called the All-Wise. And this is language that you'll see see pretty commonly throughout, throughout these ancient texts. Remember we had talked about the All-Knowing God, which talks about All-Knowing Gods in various cultures all over the world. And All-Wise or All-Knowing, All-Seeing, 
all kind of indications that this individual has some, some type of omniscience in some respect. And in fact, some translations put this as Ea, the all-knowing. The one that Sargon of Akkad, he's a YouTube personality, and he reads the Enuma Elish as well. He reads the translation where it's Ea, the all-knowing, saw through their scheme. What scheme did he see through? It, the, the destruction of the lesser gods. So he organizes the resistance to that. There's a Nudimund, and Nudimund is also said to be of broad wisdom and broad understanding. So this should also tip our minds how translations work, because translators have leeway in how they decide what concepts should be translated as what. So even in the Bible, when you see something like all-knowing, it could be all-wise. It could be of great understanding. It could be broad wisdom. But uh, it's, it's up to translator discretion. So that should just tip us off right there that there's a lot of translator bias going on when we are reading the, the Bible in its context. So broad wisdom, broad understanding, is this wisdom, is that uh, knowledge, or is it the uh, ability to deal with knowledge? I'm not sure. I don't read this uh, ancient text. So I don't know if there's any word studies on that. But he's broad of wisdom and broad of understanding and mighty in strength. We see the broad language used of Zeus quite a lot. Zeus is of broad vision, so he sees all things. And, and through that broad vision, he becomes an object by which people swear on. They swear oaths, and then Zeus is the enforcer. You see Yahweh in the Bible be the enforcer of oaths as well. Yahweh sees all things. Yahweh makes sure that uh, oaths are, are kept between uh, dueling parties. We see that between Jacob and his father-in-law, where they set a stone and they say, Oh, Yahweh will, will judge. If we cross this with ill intent, then uh, he will condemn us for, for breaking or violating our oath. And, and there's people who swear on Yahweh. Yahweh is the enforcer of oaths. Uh, later on, we, we come across this language about Marduk. Marduk's created, and all these gods are created. So it's not like having all knowledge, being omniscience, knowing all things, that that's like has to be some sort of platonic inherent thing, which is timeless, eternal, identical to self. All this knowledge that we discover within other religions is acquired knowledge. Zeus is a created being, and he, requ he acquires all knowledge. Marduk is a created being, and he acquires all knowledge. Marduk is created, quote-unquote, perfect. And remember, in the Bible, when perfect language is used about Yahweh, it's most often referring to his righteous character. It's not referring to his physical makeup, his, his perfect features, or, or he's perfect metaphysically, where if he gains one ounce of knowledge, if one piece of knowledge flows from, to him from an outside source, now he's not perfect anymore. Those are Platonic categories. They're not biblical categories. Here in context, this perfect is about Marduk's physical form and features. He's, he's got a perfect body, and he, which endows, endows him with a double godhead. I'm not sure exactly what that means. He's greatly exalted. Perfect were his members beyond comprehension. Now, this is not, this is not uh, the Platonic notion. Like, if you find any language about Yahweh in the Bible where it says that Yahweh is beyond comprehension, people will think immutability, they'll think pure simplicity, pure actuality, outside of time, timelessness, but that's not what it's about. It's just about people aren't able to 
comprehended. It's 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 above their level. It's above their pay grade. It's it's not this platonic infinite. It's not this platonic perfection. And it's definitely not in the case of Marduk this platonic comprehension where where Marduk is actually a mortal creature who could die, he could fight, he could be seen. His organs and his uh look at this, four were his eyes, four were his ears. So multiple eyes in the ancient world signified some sort of omniscience. You find Zeus is attributed a thousand eyes in one passages, and and other ancient gods as well were their their eyes signified omniscience that that they could see far. We we reached we see the eye language motif in Daniel where you got that wheel and the wheel has all these eyes. And uh, I think that language as well points to Yahweh's omniscience, that this multiple eye motif. And it's really drawing on ancient cultures at that time. Daniel, of course, was written in Babylon and drew on the familiar concepts in, in the culture around that time. So back to Marduk, when he moved his lips, fire blazed forth, large were all four hearing organs, and the eyes, like in number, scanned all things. And so this omniscience motif. So Marduk's eyes scan all things. They, they watch all things. They know all things. But of course, this is limited because he's a limited being. He engages in conflicts. He's mortal. He could die. He fights Tiamat. He, it's not assured that he's going to win. And uh, it's, it's not platonic omniscience. It's this common omniscience that we discover in ancient texts in which it's an acquired omniscience that you look to see. And even though you're looking at quote-unquote, all things, that, that's usually a hyperbole or a generalization, and it doesn't mean you are watching all things, and it absolutely doesn't apply to all things in the past and all things in the future. It just applies to present knowledge, gaining present knowledge. Let's talk about Timot a little bit. Remember, that's one of these primordial deities. And it says, Mother Hubar, and the Hubar is another, lang- or another term for Tiamat, she who fashions all things. Okay, so if that language was applied to Yahweh in the Bible, people would say, a Calvinist would say, see, God controls all things. He fashions all things. Everything that's created, he did it. It's not what it means. That's not what it means. The language here, Mother Huber, she who fashions all things, just means she originated all things. Remember, she did it in conjunction with Apsu. Is there intermingling which spawned lesser beings, and those lesser beings had children themselves who spawned lesser beings. And so she's just kind of the ultimate source. But in context, this is talking about her being creative. So she builds her army in, in this section. She creates all these, these beasts, these serpents, these uh, centaurs, these uh, scorpions to go fight Marduk. She's just creative. She can do stuff. She's, she is the ultimate cause of everything that exists, but uh, she can be defeated. She is mortal. And then Kingu, of course, Kingu is elevated. And there's an interesting scene in which Kingu is given the Tablet of Destinies. And let's listen to this. As for you, your command shall be unchangeable. Your word shall endear. And this phrase, this concept, repeats four times in the text. Same language every single time. It's not that... He now controls all things. He has platonic predestination, control, micromanagement. That's not what it's about. It's basic that basically that he can't be opposed. He's given ultimate authority. But in the text, he's ultimately defeated. And we see this language a lot within the Enuma Elish. 
where people's commands can't be opposed. People are incomparable. People can't be changed. If they say something, it can't be changed. Of course, they're not referring to platonic immutability. It's not talking about once something is set, nothing ever can ever change it. What it means is they have ultimate power. They have servants that follow whatever they command to be done, and no one has the power to oppose. Not that metaphysically in some sort of immutable divine realm this thing is set from all time eternity that's that's not the concept they're going for what they're going for is just general ability to perform general a sovereignty that rulership they control the powerful beings they themselves are powerful and of course they can be defeated as we see in this text they can be killed yes what these statements are, they're generalities. They're, they're statements about general power. <clears throat> and even when it talks about them not being able to be opposed, they can be opposed. But, of course, in the case of Marduk, when it says he can't be opposed, there have been no successful attempts to oppose Marduk within the Numa Elish. We see in tablet number two, Timot, this is ascribed to her, her decrees are firm, they are beyond resisting. Remember, we just talked about this language. It's pretty common. This phrase is used three different times, and of course, Timot in this story is in fact killed. So this is not Calvinistic decrees. So imagine if this language was applied to Yahweh in the Bible, that who could resist the will of God, right? We see that in the Bible. And the Calvinists, they jump on this language and they say, oh, say right there, uh, no one can do anything to ever subvert what God says. So if God says something, it's going to happen. Unless, of course, it's Nineveh, because God then said it wasn't going to happen, but he tricked them, and he said it was going to happen just so that they would change, and then it wouldn't happen. And only in the cases when he says something and it doesn't happen, that's when we apply this weird rule with, with zero context for that. And But everything else, everything that does happen that he said did happen, it happened because it was predestined and fated, and no one could stop it. Now, again, that's not how language works. Again, in, in this context, her decrees are firm, they are beyond resisting. What that means is she's a very powerful being, and you, yes, you can resist it, but often to ill results. And Anu and Nudimund both tried to claim for themselves ultimate godhead, in which... The command of my lips shall neither be recalled nor changed. So that language is applied to first Anu, then he fails, then Nudimund, then he fails, and then it's applied to Marduk, and he finally succeeds. And Anu, of course, is said, my son, who knows all wisdom. So Anu is another god that's given some sort of all-knowingness, some sort of omniscience. So now we got at least three gods within, within this pantheon that have these traits of omniscience. And you find that often within these pantheons of ancient religions. If you go back to the book, The All-Knowing God, not, not one god. It usually wasn't just like one god who had the all-knowledge. Often it's multiple gods in the same pantheon shared similar traits, one of which often was omniscience. The lesser gods are said to decree the fates. And of course, what that means is they just have general rulership over what happens. So they decide what goes on and when. It's not this fatalism that we experience in Calvinism where everything's set from the beginning of time. It's not about that. 
normal reading comprehension, looking at context, looking at the stories in this text. Imagine if I was a Calvinist and I actually believed that Enuma Elish rather than the Bible. I could use the same arguments that Calvinists use about Yahweh in the Bible. I could use it about Marduk. I could claim, oh, these stories are just anthropomorphisms. You got to look at these little t uh, slivers of text. You got to pull them out of context and see this. Marduk cannot be opposed. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's un unchanging. You can pull these little slivers out and just kind of do the exact same thing Calvinists do with the Bible. That's why it's very important to understand just ancient literature, even modern literature, how language works. It doesn't work in that you could just pull small little phrases out of context and then apply absurd meanings that are not generated from the context. And then you can't use those absurd definitions to override the rest of the text. So in the Bible, when it says, I, the Lord, do not change, you can't pull that, that little statement. You, you cut a verse in half already to get that statement out of context. You can't pull that verse out of context and then apply it to Exodus 32, where God says that he changes his mind about his plans for Israel and say, oh, that didn't happen because look at this little tiny sliver of text over at this other place. It doesn't work like that. Reading comprehension doesn't work like that. Someone doing that to a Elish, we should laugh at because they're a ridiculous human being. I don't know why we treat these Calvinists or these negative theologians as real scholars when they just do this proof texting where they just try to grab these little phrases and then make mountains out of molehills and then undermine the rest of the text in the process. It's not legitimate scholarship. It's not legitimate work. Let's scroll on to the next tablet here, Marduk. Marduk says this, let my word instead of you determine the fates. And what he means is he's going to have general authority to to command things to be done, and then people will follow what he commands. Unalterable shall be what I may bring into being. Imagine if that's said of Yahweh. People would be like, oh, look at that. See, everything's determined and faded. That's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. Of course, Marduk can be defeated. He's not some pan-ultimate god that's outside of time, timeless in himself. No, the normal language used about Marduk is that he, he's a being. He's a, he's a very powerful being. And he's, he's outside the league of other gods, but not that much outside the league that they all can't just team up and then defeat him. They in, actually enable Marduk. They give him divine weapons so that he could fight Timot. Listen to this language that's applied to Marduk. Your decree is unrivaled. Your command is Anu. You, Marduk, are the most honored of the great gods. Your decree is unrivaled. Your word is Anu. From this day, your pronouncement shall be unchangeable. To raise or bring low, these shall be in your hand. Your utterance shall be true. Your command shall be unimpeachable. No one among the gods shall transgress your bounds. Adornment being wanted for the seats of the gods, let the place of their shrines ever be in your place. O Marduk, you indeed are our avenger. We have granted you kingship over the entire universe entire. When you sit in the assembly, your word shall be supreme. Your weapons shall not fail. They shall smash your foes. O Lord, spare the life of him who trusts you, but pour out the life of the God who seizes evil. Just listen to that language. So he controls all things. That, that's what it tells us, right? Of course, normal reading comprehension is, yeah, that's a generality. And uh, it's generally true. And he does that through having the power to bring about what he wants and being the king over other gods, and they'll do what he wants. They are submitting to him to ensure that his word reigns supreme. This is not, of course, Calvinistic ideas 
of divine determinist determinism, divine fatalism, predestination. Not those ideas. Even though the same language, if it was applied to God in the Bible, would be taken as Calvinism. It's just not. Uh, Calvinists learn how to read. So we, we get after the defeat of Timot, we come to this list of names of Marduk. And Marduk is ascribed some 50 different names. Among that is uh, the name Tutu. He, no one among the gods is his equal. A hold on their ways, he determines their courses. So he determines courses and no one's his equal. And of course, the same language about incomparability used about Yahweh, people take as, oh, he's infinite outside of time, and there's no relationship. He has no predicates with the universe. Of course, in context, even in the context of the Yahweh quotes, it's always a comparison of, of Yahweh to other gods. So even in the context of statements about Yahweh's incomparability, there are statements of comparing Yahweh to other gods. What it means is he's on a different level. Let's, let's say I knew anything about football, and I don't, and there's a player, Brett Favre, and say he's the best. You, if you say no one compares to Brett Favre, what you're saying is that he's just on a different level. Although you can compare other people to this guy, uh, they're, they're just below him on the scale. And, and when it's talking about Yahweh in the Bible, usually it means there's, there's no one besides him. No one could compare at all to him. They're so far below. It's, it's, a, it's a language of comparison. And we see that in context. The context defines the meaning of the statement rather than vice versa. You can't just assume what you want these phrases to mean on top of the context and override the context. Context defines statements, not vice versa. Of course, Marduk is said to know the hearts of gods, and he examines the insides. Yahweh in the Bible is said to test the hearts of man. He's continuing watching, watching man, learning and knowing what's in their hearts. Of course, that heart language in the Bible is actually applied to the king of Tyre as well. Now, the Bible says you're wiser than Daniel, and you know all the secrets of the heart. He knows, he knows all the secrets of everyone around him. He's just incredibly wise, this prince of Tyre, or Prince of Tyr, however you want to say that, in the Bible. Yahweh is given this in the Bible. Of course, Yahweh actively tests people to know what's in their heart. We have the Genesis 22 incident when he tests Abraham to see what he's going to do. It's an active test to figure out what's going on. Yahweh tests to know. And this is a generally true statement. Even Psalms 139, David ends it, says, Test me, Lord, see if there's any bad ways in me. Test my heart to know who I am. Skipping to the epilogue now. This epilogue is pretty interesting. It, uh, it's repeating a lot of the same kind of wording that we've already seen already. Let him rejoice in Marduk, the Enlil of gods, that his land may be fertile and that he may prosper, firm in his order, his command unalterable. The utterance of his mouth, no god shall change. When he looks, he does not turn away his neck. When he is angry, no god can withstand his wrath. His heart is unfathomable. You can't understand his heart. His purpose is broad. So Marduk, as, as we learn in this text, so Marduk, uh, he's unchangeable. His commands are unalterable. He determines fate. He determines destiny. He has omniscience and omnipotence uh, and perfection. All, all these phrases are applied to Marduk, a created being who can be defeated in one-on-one -on -one combat, who other gods can gain up and overtake, who has, of course, a physical form within the story, multiple eyes, multiple ears, and these, these gods can die in the story. So all these statements, although they apply to Marduk, 
you have to read them in context. It's not like they don't know what they're talking about. It's not like this language is just completely inaccurate. These words and phrases, you just have to apply common reading comprehension skills when applying them to Marduk. You just see what they mean in context, see if they're a generalization, if they're hyperbole, if it's, if it's something that's just being said as some sort of praise for Marduk, which has exceptions. And then you look at who Marduk is as a character in the story. You don't override who he is and what he does by these titles that are bestowed on him. Instead, you learn about his titles and who he is from his actions, and from his actions you make generalities. Same thing that we need to do when we are reading the Bible. We don't learn about who Yahweh is from these short little snippets of text that you pull out of context and ascribe all sorts of random crazy meanings to. You learn about who Yahweh is from his deeds, his actions, his character, his interaction, and from there you're able to make generalizations. I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. I think it's very important to read similar texts to the Bible in similar Semitic contexts and to see what the Bible was competing with in its own time. And these phrases, how they're used, these gods, who they were, this pantheon against which the Bible is set and the Bible is fighting against Marduk for who is the true God. And we see that conflict play out in the Bible in the wording of these texts in Isaiah and Daniel. And so... Read this, uh, Enuma Elish, understand who these individuals are. Uh, Follow up with the Epic of Gilgamesh, also on that same channel, has a reading of that. And it starts out, of course, that Gilgamesh knows all things. Of course, that's a generalization. Gilgamesh in the story is just like like a semi-divine king, kind of like a Hercules character, but he quote-unquote knows all things. This is generalization. It just says he's pretty smart and he knows generally what's going on. But read this text, learn how language works, learn how the ancients wrote and how they thought. And uh, got any questions and comments on this podcast, send that to godisopen at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.